0: Welcome to the Fertility Podcast.
1: Welcome to part two of episode seven of the Fertility Podcast. If this is the first podcast you've downloaded to have a listen to, feel free to carry on listening, but I would suggest you at least listen to part one of episode seven. The Fertility Podcast is all about raising awareness of issues affecting couples and individuals on their journey to have a family Now, uh, there's a whole host of podcasts you can already listen to, well, six, because we've just started out, so please do have a listen, but they can all be taken individually, except this one. We heard in part one of episode seven from a blogger called Wannabe Dad, who is a guy dealing with his own infertility. Now, I'd found him on Twitter blogging anonymously and just thought his story was amazing, so do have a listen. It was such a good story that I wanted to split the podcast in half and save the X Experts that I was catching up with, who were also talking on this subject for another podcast, which is what we've got now. So coming up, you're going to hear from Dr. Alan Pacey, who is a lecturer at the University of Sheffield and is very involved in aspects of male infertility with regards to the research he does and the lectures that he gives. And we're also going to hear from Dr. Zai from the Zai Clinic, who's been involved in a campaign called Make Fertility Conceivable, which you'll hear more about. Both of them talk a lot about fertility in general, but they do specialise in aspects affecting male infertility. And the whole point of the Fertility Podcast in general, and more specifically, these two episodes of the podcast, is to get that awareness going on again male infertility as you're here isn't talked about enough isn't researched enough there's loads more that we need to do so hopefully you'll find this interesting now it gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Alan Pacey, who has a pretty long intro, which will be on the show notes. But Alan is a, a senior lecturer at the University of Sheffield, also on the British Fertility Society as chairman, as well as a member of the editorial boards of Human Fertility, Reproduction and Fertility and Sterility. And I'm sure there's more that I could add to your, your long list of involvements. Welcome to the Fertility Podcast. It's a pleasure. I'm going to start quite bluntly and ask you, with all the research that you do and, and the discussions that you have are sperm counts declining.
0: It's an interesting question. Um it's controversial because I think there's so much information out there and so many hypotheses have been posed. I don't think we're yet at the stage to know for certain whether sperm counts have declined or are still declining. I'm quite suspicious of data that suggests that they've been steadily declining since the 1950s, because we've actually changed a lot about how we count sperm over that time. And counting sperm, believe it or not, is incredibly difficult, because sperm swim around, they're in a thick, gloopy fluid, and... You can use different techniques and get different answers. So it may well be an impossible question to ever answer because we don't have a time machine and we can't go, can't go back in time. What I can say is that more couples that have a male factor component to their infertility are being seen in clinics. That's a fact. But I think we have to be careful about how we interpret the reason that that is occurring, because what we've seen over the last 20 years is that people are waiting until they're older before they try and have children. And even if you've got a slight male factor fertility problem, if you try when you're 20, you're likely to be successful. But if you try when you're 40, you're less likely to be successful. So we have to try and tease out biology from social factors which currently makes it an almost impossible question to answer.
1: Well, it's an interesting answer on it, because one of the other things that I wanted to ask you, which was related to a chat you had on Woman's Hour on Radio 4 a couple of years ago, which was about research that had been done in other countries and how there was this issue of the UK being more guarded when it came to research. Is that affecting the studies of male infertility?
0: Yeah, I think it's very difficult from my perspective as somebody who wants to do studies in, in male fertility to try and raise the profile sufficiently to then attract what is required in terms of grant funding to do the research. So um, in comparison to, I'm afraid to say this, but in comparison to things like cancer, diabetes, obesity and many, many other medical conditions, male fertility is actually quite low down the bottom of people's priority list. And that's a sad fact. And we occasionally get successes and we occasionally get to do good work, but we don't get to do it as often as we might like. And it can take hundreds of thousands of pounds, if not millions of pounds, to do studies that are going to answer big questions like, uh, is male declining or what might, might the reason be? So I think... Um, I think our just general prioritisation of male fertility in healthcare is a problem. I don't think that's helped by our general views in society that it's something to giggle at, and uh, I wish it wasn't the case, but that's how I perceive it.
1: Well, we're going to talk um, in a moment about Wannabe Dad, who's a blogger who we spoke to earlier on this podcast, because he's posed some questions about his experience mm-hmm. to you. But one of the pieces of research I wanted to ask you about, which was picked up in the papers earlier this month, was about Danish research, which was talking about the effects of alcohol on sperm health. And I know that you were quoted as saying your own study had failed to link alcohol with sperm health. How, how much emphasis, therefore, do you think should be put on this? Because we have talked in the fertility podcast about the importance of well-being, when you're trying to conceive and really both men and women, when it comes to toxins in your body, you want to try and reduce them. So, what would you say on that?
0: I think the alcohol picture can potentially be confusing because the studies have looked at, each study has looked at slightly different things. So, in the Danish study that was published a few weeks ago, they were recruiting men from the general population. They were in the fortunate position that they can ask men who are coming forward to be military recruits. Well, I don't, I'm not sure they even ask, and they probably tell them that they need to uh, enter this study and, and provide a semen sample. So these were healthy men with no obvious infertility. And what they found was that, yes, as alcohol consumption increased, they could see detectable changes or reductions in semen quality. But if you look at the data carefully, it suggests that if you are drinking alcohol within recommended guidelines, so not going to excess, but just having a social drink once a day, perhaps, that actually the effect was really quite marginal. That, right. that maps quite well to our study. And in our study of 2012, we recruited about two and a half thousand men who were presenting for infertility investigations. So it's a different cohort altogether. And when we looked at, the, at whether an alcohol alcohol consumption was an issue, we found that it wasn't a significant issue. But it was a different different population of men. So I would say both studies say essentially the same thing which is if you're sensible and you drink alcohol within guidelines, um, there seems to be no additional impact on whatever infertility may exist. My perception of men when I meet them in the clinic is that they find that quite a relief because alcohol can be a social lubricant. It can help you relax. It can help sex life. And so I think this kind of wagging of finger that, doctors or society may do about alcohol in this in this instance isn't justified no don't go out to the pub on a friday night and get blotto and get legless Mm -hmm. but a little social drinking within guidelines is i think not going to impact on your fertility significantly and most men um, feel feel quite reassured about that if they're drinkers if they're not drinkers in the first place then it's it's irrelevant to them
1: So with there being an issue with male infertility and that there are stats saying one in five men are diagnosed with poor sperm health or poor sperm mobility. And there are factors that can be discussed, like holding a mobile phone in a pocket and having a laptop on a lap. Do you think that kind of information is too basic to raise awareness with?
0: I think it helps raise awareness, but I think the biology is more complex than that. There are two stages in a man's life when his fertility might be affected. Interviews with fertility experts on the Fertility Podcast. The first is usually a surprise. So the first and arguably the most important stage is actually before he was born, when he's still inside his mother's womb. And we know from evidence from a number of studies that if you uh, expose a male fetus to um, the wrong environment, usually the wrong endocrine environment, the wrong hormone environment, that you can... Um, inhibit the development of his testicles as an, as a fetus and have an impact such that when he becomes an adult man and goes through puberty, his testicles work less well than they would in 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 other cases. So when we, wow. when we start talking about whether or not using a mobile phone as an adult or whether or not drinking alcohol as an adult or whether or not wearing tight pants as an adult, is going to have an effect, what we have to try and do is disentangle what might have happened 20 or 30 years earlier. And that's why it's such a difficult piece of science to understand. So arguably, if you are unfortunately a chap who's had poor testicular development as a foetus, and you've got to adulthood and your testicles are working less well, usually they're smaller than the average, then arguably some of these lifestyle factors, well, you could take, you could take this two ways. Um, In comparison to to your poor testicular development, any negative effect is perhaps going to be small, but arguably might be more significant for you because you want every change you can. Whereas if you've got testicles that are enormous, dare I say, um, arguably you could throw more unhealthy lifestyles at them and they would still produce you enough sperm in order to allow you to become a dad. So what I've tried to do there is disentangle a 30, 40-year journey that men have to think about. It's no comfort at all to look at a 30-year-old man and say, you've got small testicles, it might be something that happened when you were a fetus. Because there's nothing you can do about it. Right. So it's, it's a really complex, complex piece of science. I think the best evidence is, don't make the situation worse. So look at your lifestyle, look at things that you are doing, If you wear tight pants, perhaps wear loose ones. With discussed alcohol, I think don't binge, but regular alcohol consumption within guidelines is fine. Think about diet. If you're eating beef burgers all the time and you don't see any fruit and veg, fruit and veg might make a bit of difference for you. So it's a case of unpicking all those things that you do have control over in order to try and not make the situation worse and maximize the health of the sperm that your testicles are going to produce.
1: Now, we mentioned before about male infertility being, sadly, still a sniggering issue. And there is this pride aspect. Men don't talk about this type of thing like women do. And if they're in the pub, for example, Wannabe Dad was talking earlier about how he's more likely to hear his friends boast at what strong swimmers they have, rather than it being something that he, as a as a person with a fertility issue, is able to talk about. How do we get, then, men to understand this issue look into this issue be aware of it being something that they they can take responsibility for is that fair to say yeah
0: i think we we can do that but i think we have to again think intergenerationally so i think today's young men and i what i mean by that is young uh, students at school or young university students i suspect in 10 or 20 years time they're going to have a very different view when they get to that point in their lives i think it's very difficult to change the attitudes of a of a cross-section of society because we've all grown up with all our histories and that's very difficult to unpick and unchange. But I think going forward I see that younger men are far more keener to talk about this and I think in the many way that we've seen a liberation in many other aspects of our life, I think going forward um, in the next... 10 or 20 years, we might see significant changes in men's abilities to talk about this. Having said that, I think like it or loathe it, men are different to women fundamentally because of genetics or endocrine reasons or whatever. And, And I think there will always be an element of guardedness. We know from many aspects of healthcare that women tend to find a lot of peer support by talking to their peers, whereas men usually only have one confidant, if at all. Men don't talk in groups, but they will usually talk to a trusted friend. Um, might not be the deepest of conversations but you there is an element there so um, I think we'll always have this gender difference but I think the younger men getting older uh, we will see them being a bit more open than today's men.
1: That's interesting so I mean wannabe dad earlier was talking about the one friend he confided in because him and his partner they've been trying for 18 months and have kept it Completely private. They've not told their family, and the problem is with him. They are embarking on on Ixie. He had a undescended testicle as a child, mm-hmm. and as asked, if you had thirty seconds to offer some advice for a man with that diagnosed invisibility problem what what would what would you say to someone like
0: that well the thing about undescended testicles is that probably relates back to what i was talking earlier about what happened when he was in the womb because what normally happens is in towards the end of pregnancy or just after a boy is born the testicles are supposed to descend into the scrotum and if they don't it either is a signal that something was wrong or Or they potentially sometimes can be relocated surgically and and the the deficit corrected, if you you like. And I would say for somebody like him, it would be a case of not making sperm production any less efficient than it's already going to be. So having a a really good look at uh, lifestyle factors and having a really good look at diet and just making sure that everything possible that could be a negative, such as tight pants... Um, or lack of uh, antioxidants in the diet um, is, is corrected in some way. And then it's a case of trying as early as as possible to, to try and become a dad, but actually not delaying an intervention like ICSI because the success of a procedure like ICSI is largely dependent upon female age and the, and the age of his partner's eggs. And what I see with a lot of guys, and some of my own friends included, is that they do sometimes dare I say, bury their heads in the sand. And Um, if a year goes past or two years goes past and they're still coming to terms with the fact that they may need ICSI, that's one or two years when the female partner is slightly older and that has a detrimental effect on success rates. So I think getting some proper counselling, getting some proper information in order to go forward in a timely fashion would also be good advice.
1: We mentioned briefly before about the, kind of the, the difficulty getting grants for studies in the UK. With regards to the NHS and a responsibility on their part, would you like to see more checks on men? I mean, we know we have trouble getting men to check themselves with regards to cancer-related issues. Do you think that there should be something? Maybe there will be in a a school medical or like we as as women have to have a regular smear. I mean, should there be something like that for men?
0: It's an interesting question. I think probably what you're you're talking about is whether we should have kind of fertility MOTs for men. Um, I I, I do worry a little bit about that because I think you can um, you could cause worry in. Uh, in, in some men or couples, uh, because a man is told at a very early age, maybe 10 or 15 years before he's even thinking about children, that he may ha- potentially have a problem in the future. And that's 10 or 15 years almost with the sword of Damocles hanging over your head. That said, if it stimulates men to come forward, or to consider trying for a baby a few years earlier, then it could be a good thing. So I'm a bit on the fence about that. The analogy that I would use is is with regard to men who've had to face a diagnosis of cancer. And I do a lot of work with guys who've had cancer treatment. And we do um, run a clinic in Sheffield, which is designed almost to be fertility coaching for them. Because if you've had cancer you're all all chemotherapy for another reason, you are less likely to be as fertile as you were before. And therefore, trying for a baby earlier than you might have thought you wanted to actually leads to better success. Um, Relatively few of our cancer patients uh, need assisted conception after cancer diagnosis because they are surprisingly fertile. But I think one of the reasons that that is the case is the fact that they are more aware of the fact that they may have infertility and so they get on with it a little bit sooner. So I'm on the fence about um, fertility MOTs for men in the absence of a reason to. But I think if a man does fall into a high risk group, such as having had cancer treatment or having other medical issues or knowing that he has undescended testicles or something like that, then it may well be a good thing to do, either to reassure him or to get him to arguably get his skates on if he's in a position to do so.
1: Right. Interesting stuff. And do you think it's fair to say that without wanting to scaremonger... The, the fact that you're fit and healthy and you eat a good diet and you, you exercise regularly and you're in good shape doesn't necessarily mean all, all will be fine. There's not really rhyme or reason as to who is affected.
0: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, there isn't an outward signal of your infer- infertility or your fertility. You can be a super athlete. You could be extremely healthy and do everything according to all the best dietary advice and lifestyle advice there is. And you could still discover the fact that your testicles are not working as well as they should and you haven't got as many sperm as you should or they're not swimming as well as they should swim and that I think is hard to um, for men to take on board I think it's hard for anyone to take on board when you have any medical uh, diagnosis if you feel fit and well and and you suddenly find that something has, has gone awry so I don't think you should reassure yourself that just because you are an Olympic champion sportsman or the biggest intellect in the world, and uh, you try and do everything by the book, that you are uh, going to be without problems. Having said that, I wouldn't want people to sit there and worry that they're inevitably going to have problems. And what I would say is that uh, if if you find that you have difficulty in conceiving, try for a year. If it doesn't work, then as quick as you can, seek medical advice and get the proper test done, and then a path can be decided for you with a doctor hopefully you will conceive in that time when those tests are being done but if not i think just man up and uh, just you know go for some form of assisted conception and bite the bullet as it were
1: and knowledge at the end is power so we want everyone to know as much as they can about this
0: absolutely but also evidence is power and i think what i would say is that there is an awful lot of hocus pocus around there's an awful lot of people trying to sell you this that and the other that may claim to boost sperm counts or, or not as the case may be um I, what I'm proud to say is that in the UK, we really do things, as I think, as good as anyone in an evidence-based way. And if you were to seek treatment in other countries, doctors may be um, more wanting to sell you this, that and the other. Whereas in the UK, if there ain't evidence to support a decision, um, doctors, by and large, won't go down that route. And so I think patients in the UK, male or female, do get um, a, a pretty good deal from the decision making where they don't get a good deal is where the funders decide whether or not they can fund it on the nhs yeah that's
1: a whole other podcast indeed <laughs> indeed dr alan Paisley, thank you we're going to put all your details on the show notes and your twitter feed, yep. your twitter handle as well thank you for your time right, appreciate Cheers, it
0: bye-bye. the fertility podcast
1: i'll put all of dr Allen's details in the show notes which will be the fertilitypodcast.com forward slash episode 7 part 2 and next we're going to hear dr zai talk about her involvement in the make fertility conceivable campaign and her belief that using chinese medicine particularly with male fertility cases can really improve fertility health it's a very interesting argument so have a listen welcome dr zai from the zai clinic to episode 7 dr zai thank you for being here my pleasure You have over two decades of experience, obviously, working with couples at your Harley Street Clinic. One of the main reasons that we're chatting today is about the campaign that you're championing, which is the Make Fertility Conceivable campaign, which was launched in August this year. Do you want to just tell me a bit about the decision to launch
2: the campaign? Yes, uh, um, at the moment, the uh, fertility option and treatment almost zero on male infertility and the research and assistive procedure developed enormously on and um, very much mechanical for example male has little bit low sperm count, or the severe male infertility problem, and there's no treatment option apart from the procedure. And I feel you put a lot of pressure on male as well as a couple. Had to go through a very hard way, a very unnecessary Invasive procedure to achieve what they intend to have a family. Just go back a step because you talk
1: about the invasive treatment. Now you're referring to ICSI. Yes. To explain is a is a method of IVF, which is when there's poor sperm mobility and the the sperm is injected into the egg. You talk about it being invasive and the risks with regards to an increase in downs and an increase in miscarriage. However, there's there's as much research to say that ICSI is successful fertility treatment so do you think that by talking about male fertility issues and ICSI when it is a solution in some respects being invasive that's going to deter men because it's going to put the fear in them in that they know their their partner's already going through the fertility drugs and the various tests and if they know that ICSI as an option is then described as invasive and there's these risks. Do you not think that that then, I mean, we already have a limit of men who, who step forward to have these tests. Do you
2: not think that that enhances their reluctance? ICSI is a phenomenal, it's an option, particularly for those very severe sperm production issue. But at the moment, ICSI is very widespread and used for every single cases, which is really danger. Particularly, there's no treatment option available to how to improve the male sperm quality, and simply you just collect the sperm, and they maybe contain chromosome abnormality, and the offspring children in the future is still very unknown, and there's a lot of success, particularly those very severe sperm uh, genetic issues that picked up one sperm to create the children that Really, to overcome those people, there's no treatment option available. But however, there's a massive, massive male infertility. They don't need that. They need to improve well. the sperm quality and need the treatment rather than procedure. So let's talk about improving male sperm health. In many cases are not just simply lifestyle. And lifestyle is partially may contribute, but so many male infertility, more than just what you've seen, and there's maybe a constitution issue. There's maybe their personal health contribute, and some of them born from their parents with the weak, certain weak uh, part of their body is weak malfunction. And also the poor lifestyle, alcohol and it unhealthy that all the malfunction of the male reproductive system. I normally will do the DNA fragmentation for male and the couple has been many years not conceived. The male has normal sperm can and quite often I like to test those men. It's not surprising some of them actually the sperm routine semen analysis seems normal but the DNA fragmentation makeup actually it's not very good that contributed to the long-term infertile so if there's a problem with the male
1: sperm from the dna point of view which i assume only happens once you've gone private to someone like yourself because that's certainly not something that's discussed on the nhs is that then a point where the advice is you can improve this or is it that you you really shouldn't try and conceive using the sperm and maybe look to a donor
2: um, yes, um, don't add as an option. <laughs> That's another shortcut. Um, I do not think this is the the, the option and um, many people want to choose. Um, oh, of course, but can you change the DNA in a yes, sperm? Yes, it... um, okay. in, in Chinese medicine maybe is the only one we can see, make change in chromosome makeup of the male and sperm quality. And that's something phenomenal. And we would like to push this ahead. The the government, the public, and the medical colleagues, they all paid attention. It has been a good experience and a good observation. We've done the research, and the final step is all about we need to carry out a proper clinical trial.
1: Because one of the issues that I know... When you go to the NHS talking about using any Chinese medicine, is they pretty much turn around and say they don't recognise it because it's not regulated. So, how do you then come back to that? Yeah. How do you
2: answer that? At the moment, it's crazy um, because unregulated as a professional body, therefore many people cowboy practice out there, and the government we urgently. Um, urging the government to take this on board, to look into the regulation, get the body regulated, only the qualified people able to practice. At the moment, anybody can practice. Doesn't matter what education, what study you have, everybody just to treat everyone. And so many uh, practitioners out there and they are not properly regulated. And that's really danger. and I, I'm not... Uh, completely you know want to criticize the NHS it is a need to regulate Um, we we see so many medical profession ourselves and in the end of the day you have to find somebody recommend it and you know but in the end of the day really the government need to take on board has been delayed for so long it's very maybe to the government they think a very complicated step going forward Um, I do not know, but we all campaign all the time. We want the government to regulate this body and to to set this TCM body as a professional body. It's a very powerful uh, treatment. The outcome is amazing, but we need to regulate. Do you, in all honesty, see the NHS getting
1: on board with recommending Chinese medicine, or do you see it as something that couples who have fertility issues are going to go have to go private, that private is going to be the only option to get this access?
2: Well, I am not in a position um, to influence whether uh, the TCM should be NHS cover or, or IVF should be NHS cover, but I want to make one point that so many people went through IVF, but most of yeah. the time it's a waste of NHS money, there's a lot of money involved, but most people fail, and yes, sometimes success, but mostly still failure of the IVF. That's why it's all about their functional body is not corrected, even though with a younger woman unable to produce the good quality egg as they should be. So I feel it's frustrating when you see people run out of money, privately and, and finish all the NHS and IVF cycle then they turn up to see us it should be other way around, if I have a power I'm not talking about NHS or not NHS or privately if I have a power people should do this first get their body ready in a good position then to see whether they, they are able to conceive naturally or if not then presumed assisted fertility treatment. Now, it's a madness. The NHS wastes a lot of money. People are devastating. It's most of the case still not successful. Of course, some successful, but more than half, probably 70% are not successful. And when they run out the time, 45, 46, oh, I have been told uh, somebody recommend we should come to see you. That's or a little bit chilly.
1: So would you, just to finish, Dr. Zai, would you put it out there to say that you, you, you know, hands on heart feel that the the, um, the use of Chinese medicine along with fertility treatment is going to give better results than
2: without? Absolutely. And just look into our clinic statistics. On average, people come to see us, they sell on average four Assisted fertility treatment before they turn up to see us. Yet more than half of them actually can see by themselves, rather than go back for another IVF. But of course, some people we still want to support them to go through IVF. In the end of the day, don't forget the functional issue within the human body. Even though you're within the very fertile, productive age, reproductive age, but you don't produce. What the quality of the egg is supposed to be, that is a functional issue. But what the IVF exit offer is the shortcut, take what you can produce, and that's not enough. That's a procedure, that's a not treatment. Thank you, Dr.
1: Zai. And as always with the Fertility Podcast, loads of information there. Dr. Zai's details will be in the show notes as well, thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash episode seven part two if you haven't yet subscribed please do so you can subscribe via itunes or on stitcher tell people about what's going on here with the fertility podcast if you know someone who it might help or if you yourself have been struggling and um maybe this has helped you it'd be great to hear from you you can email me questions at the fertilitypodcast.com. also do follow me on twitter at fertility any comments you want to give there and on facebook I'm The Fertility Podcast too. Hope you've enjoyed this journey so far. You can also put comments on the website, thefertilitypodcast.com. And until the next time...
0: The Fertility Podcast.